Well, before we kind of get into what's going on here in verses 12 through 19, I think it would be good once again to remind ourselves of the theme of 1 Peter, which is uh, believers are suffering and they're suffering unjustly. And so Peter tells them in chapter 5, verse 12, why he wrote this letter. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter is writing to suffering Christians. Christians who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. He says there are various trials, but it it seems like in this first letter that Peter's writing here that the suffering is for their faith. They're being persecuted. Not to the point yet of maybe physical becoming the predominant way of suffering, but there's verbal ridicule coming on them as being Christians. They're being persecuted for their faith. So Peter says here he wants to write to encourage the Christian to stand firm in the grace of God. Um, Some of you may be aware of this. Um, History tells us that the first severe, intense persecution of Christians took place under the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero was a he was a weird guy. He was kind of the Hitler of the first century, if you will. Um, Hitler, um, oh, excuse me, Nero. Bring Hitler that far back. Um, Nero had this idea, like most emperors, he wanted to be well known. He wanted to leave this legacy behind. So Nero had this idea of Rebuilding Rome, making it ornate, making it an extravagant place. So when he's gone off the scene, when people come to Rome, they would say, wow, look at what Nero has done. So Nero wanted to, to rebuild and he wanted to make Rome this city that would bring a lot of fame to him. And he was willing to do whatever it took to do it. So Nero sets Rome on fire, certain parts of it, intentionally. I don't think he intended for it to go as far as it did, but it did. It kind of got out of hand, and you can well imagine that people were not happy when that happened. But because Christians were already hated during that time, Nero kind of capitalized on that anti-Christian sentiment, and he rounded up the Christians and blamed this fire upon them and began to treat them very um, in horrific ways, cruel. History tells us that uh, and it, it depends on what account you read how he did this, but I was reading this week that they made um, robes or these big shirts out of wax and they would put it on the Christians and put them up on a pole and they would set the, the wax on fire and they'd use the Christians to light their parties that they would have and just uh, wrap them in skins of dead animals and lay them out in the open for the wild beasts to come and do whatever they wanted to do to them. So Nero was not a nice guy. Peter's, Peter's writing just before that takes place. It has not happened yet, but Peter's writing just before that takes place. And in our text today, Peter's giving persecuted Christians a proper perspective on suffering that is going on in their lives currently, but unknown to Peter and these Christians, suffering that lies ahead for them. They're unaware of what's coming. But who's aware of what's coming? God is. Inspired by the Spirit of God, Peter's writing this letter. Suffering as a Christian may not seem immediately relevant for us today. Most of us sitting in this room, we talk about suffering Christians. We, we don't have a category for that most of the time, do we? Some of us have been mocked and made fun of because we're Christians, but we don't have a, a category for that. Some Christians are not experiencing persecution of any form at all. 
to talk of you know pain and suffering for faith in Christ is something that's kind of removed from our thinking. We don't we don't wake up and go, well, will I suffer today or will I not suffer today? However, we need to realize that times of suffering for being a Christian they will come at some time, some shape, form, or fashion in our lives, and for that reason. We need to store up God's Word in our heart. We need to see what Peter's saying here to believers and put that in our mind. That one day when suffering comes, here's what we do. We run to what God's Word says and here's, here's how we think about that when it does come in our lives. So if you're looking at your, excuse me, your handout there, you see that the main idea is a proper perspective on suffering as a Christian. Proper, a proper perspective on suffering as a Christian. So if you're looking at verse 12, your handout, I kind of made this simple this week. There's one word to outline each of these points. And the first word there is to expect. Expect what? Expect suffering as a Christian. Look at what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though some, excuse me, as though something strange were happening to you. Something jumps out. For me, in that verse there, Peter says, when suffering comes your way, what does he say? Don't be surprised. And don't think it's strange when it does come. When you hear the words surprise and strange, what do you think? Something out of the ordinary, right? That surprises me. That's, that's kind of strange. It's something out of the ordinary. But Peter says, get your mind fixed. Have this perspective. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange when suffering comes your way. The occurrence of suffering shouldn't come as a surprise or seem like a strange thing to us when it does come. Instead, believers are to expect suffering to come at times during their lives. How do we know that? Well, obviously from Peter's letter here, but in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, which is a verse you may want to make note of, listen as I read there, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you hear what? Timothy said there, all who, or Paul, all who desire to live godly. You seek as a believer, a follower of Jesus, to live godly, to live for Jesus. You pursue that. You have your life focused on that as a Christian. I'm going to live godly. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to pursue Him. What does it say here? You're going to be persecuted. It's going to happen. Notice what Peter calls this suffering here. He calls it a a fiery trial. Now, the word fiery indicates that persecution or suffering will hurt. It'll be painful like a fire. Any of you ever accidentally, I hope it was always accidentally, stuck your hand in the fire? Accidentally, right? Nobody's ever done that on purpose. You see me afterwards if you have, and we'll get you some help. Um, it hurts, right? Last week I was... I was taking something out of the oven and I opened the door on it and I didn't push it back far enough and I reached in with the pot holders but my arm hit the inside of that door and there's a mark running down my arm here. I mean, it wasn't the fire, but I knew what the fire would have felt like if I'd have put my hand in there. But it was, it, it was painful. The Bible also uses this word interestingly in this form. It, it tells us that there's it's pain. Suffering will come, will bring pain to us. But the Bible also uses these words to refer... Uh, to this fiery trial as a furnace 
melting down metal to remove the impurities from it. You've heard that, right? Most of us have grown up and heard these stories over and over, how you, you heat metal and you do what? Gold, you're heating that, you're tempering that metal to do what? So the impurities will rise to the top and you'll have the pure product. Notice verse 12, the, the purpose of suffering. These fiery trials, don't be surprised, don't think it's strange when it comes upon you to do what to you? To test you. We heard this before in First Peter. In chapter 1, if you'll flip back a page or two and look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various means multiple type sufferings. Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. And when does that come? At what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns. And Peter's going to bring that up again here. Believer, fiery trials are meant to test you. Not in terms of taking an exam to see if you pass, but to test in terms like tempering metal to take away the impurities. That's what Peter's talking about here. Most of us, including myself, we, we kind of flatter ourselves into thinking that we're doing fairly well in this Christian life, don't we? And that we don't need trials to test our faith. I'm good. I don't need nothing like that to test my faith. I'm, I'm good. But here's the problem with that. You don't know yourself. We don't know the depths of our sin. You know, even as Christians, those who have turned from sin, we're still shot through with sin, right? There's days I sit down and I, there's no doubt in my mind that I know Jesus. But there's some days I look at my life and I go, man, I'm just a sinner shot through with sin. It's there. We don't know the depth of our sin, the extent of our self-trust, or maybe the shallowness of our joy as a Christian. So, God graciously sends trials to test us, to test our faith. So what's happening when you suffer, church? What's happening when you're suffering? God's at work in your life. For what? Your good. God is testing you. He sends those fiery trials of persecution for living for Him. And you can apply these principles even to suffering in general in life. God is using those things to do what? To mature you, to grow you, to move away what is impure in your life. So, how should you and I look at suffering in our life? What does Peter say? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You shouldn't think it's strange. As Christians, you should not be surprised by trials. In actuality, you should, be, you should what? If God loves you, and he, and he does, and He wants to work in your life to take away things, you should what? Expect those things to come. If you're a believer and you see suffering as strange, you're not thinking in a biblical way about who you are and about who God is. You shouldn't think of suffering as a sign of God being unfaithful or neglecting. You've done this, right? Why, Lord? Why? Well, we know why, right? Sometimes it can be because of our... I want to say stupidity and sin. God punishes us 
But the majority of the time, things are coming in our life because God wants to work in our life. It's a sign of you being included. Listen to this. This kind of blew me away this week. It's a sign of you being included in God's plan of redemption. Yes, you are born again, redeemed, but all through your life, we have this process of what, church? Sanctification. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved one day. Justified, sanctified, glorified. So God is working. It's a sign of you being included in this plan of God redeeming. It's a sign of operation of God's grace. It's a sign of relentless, transforming love. You're like, really? Come on now. God loves me when He lets me suffer? Absolutely. That's what the Bible says. That God's working in your life to make you more like Jesus. To remove those things that's in your life, to rid them out, to get them out. So, when you're going through suffering, how should you be thinking about that? This is God's grace in my life to do something in my life for my good. What do you and I want to do most of the time when suffering comes? Start the engine up and give it all the gas we can and run from it, right? We want to get out of that, right? Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't go looking for it. God's fully capable of bringing it to you. Don't go looking for it. But when it comes... By no means. Me standing here, am I telling you this is easy? That I got this figured out? It's tough. But I've learned that God's doing something in my life in this suffering. God loves me, and He's doing whatever it takes to take me from here to here. Look at verses 13 and 14. Still expect suffering, but notice what He says in verse 13. Your one word outline is exult, or exult in suffering. That word exult means... We don't use that word very often. It means jubilation. Some of you right now are groaning on the inside. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. We can exult in trials because they lead us into deeper fellowship with Jesus. Don't be surprised. Don't think I'm strange. But notice how that verse began. What word does it begin with? But. But indicates what? Contrast. Instead of being surprised by suffering, what should you do, Christian? What does it say? I know you're going. You're thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Rejoice? Why would you rejoice? Because God's working in your life to do something. Instead of being surprised... Rejoice. This is, this is where the hard stuff gets harder, as I like to think. Enduring trials is one thing, but rejoicing them is something else, right? Now again, this, don't take this too far. I'm not saying I, I get enjoyment out of the physical pain that I might be having in my life. That's, that's what I'm talking about. But notice something here. He said rejoice. And that rejoice is in the present tense. That may be why some of you have a translation that reads, keep on rejoicing. Continue rejoicing in the midst of your suffering, continually. But he says that rejoice, (coughs) excuse me, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. The Christian should expect to suffer how? As Jesus suffered, right? That makes sense, right? Christian, follower of Jesus, you would suffer what he suffers. Union with Christ in His death and resurrection also means union with Him in His sufferings. 
Notice this word, share. Re- rejoice insofar as you share. The Greek word there for share is the word koinoneo, or koinonia. How many of y'all ever heard that word in your Sunday school classes before? Koinonia? Anybody know what it means? It means to fellowship. That's what that word means. When you suffer on behalf of the gospel, you join with Jesus in suffering unjustly. You share with Him. You're fellowshipping with Jesus in those times. You're going, I've never thought of it that way. I never thought of me fellowshipping with Jesus in these sufferings. But he says, rejoice insofar as you share. There's fellowship in this life as a Christian when you're suffering. How do we know that? Well, listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Did you hear what Paul's saying there? When you're reading the New Testament and you see the idea of glory and glorification, you need to be mindful of what comes before glory comes. What comes before glory comes? Suffering, right? Before the glory comes, suffering always is there. If any of you ever played any kind of athletic sport in high school, there was a time when there was great glory, right? But what happened before the glory came? Blood, sweat, and tears on the practice field, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10 says, Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. When you're suffering... There's sharing with Jesus in His sufferings. There's a fellowship going on when you're suffering and particularly suffering unjustly because of your faith in Christ. Look at verse 13 again. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Now what does it say next? That, or so that, you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Again, it's talking about the second coming of Christ there. Notice that the ones that are rejoicing at... Christ's return are the ones that are rejoicing when? In the midst of their suffering. In fact, the text seems to be saying that if we don't rejoice in Him now in the midst of sufferings, we won't rejoice then either. Did you see that? We won't rejoice when Jesus comes if we can't rejoice now in the sufferings, the fellowship of those sufferings. In other words, how we respond to suffering is an indication of whether we truly belong to Jesus or not. That's what Peter's saying. It's a good sign. It's a good indicator of whether you really belong to Christ or not and how you respond to the suffering in your life. How should a Christian respond? It's not to be surprised. It's not to be strange. It's to be expected. And God is working in my life through this to make me more like Christ. So so how do we apply this? Peter's not saying that you rejoice, and I think I said this earlier, because pain is something to be happy about, right? Right? Don't misunderstand me. I've suffered, and I, it, it wasn't pleasant. It's, it's not wrong to feel the pain of ridicule and rejection. 
But Peter's saying that God is behind that suffering and He's doing something that's worth rejoicing over. That's the point. Physically, how people are treating you is not the part that's to be rejoicing in because that hurts, right? But we rejoice in the fact that we know in this God is doing something in our life to make us more like Christ. Peter is saying that God is behind that suffering. He's doing something worth rejoicing over. If in this life you get the pain part and you don't get the rejoicing part, you're missing something beautiful that God's doing in your life. Remember that Jesus' physical suffering on earth was followed by what? Glory. Suffering always comes before glory comes. I know it's hard to see. I know it's hard to get beyond the here and now. Struggles and things that we go through. But listen, there will be a day when you experience such wonderful, grand, long-term glory that you'll look back at this life of suffering and it will be hard for you to remember the pain you went through. You might not even remember it because of the glory that's going to come in your life. You must believe in eternity and you're to believe that every moment of suffering is marching you toward what, church? Glory. We can exult in trials because they lead us into a deeper experience of God's Spirit. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. I bet you never thought of it that way, right? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The word insulted here refers to verbal abuse. The the word means actually to, to heap insults upon. Christians can be verbally abused for their devotion to Jesus. And this intense persecution... For the believer can threaten your faith at times, right? Most of us, when suffering comes, it's what? Flee, right? I want to, you know, that's why it's so important when new believers, when people come to Christ, it's so important to disciple them, to help them understand, here's how you walk, here's how you follow Jesus. Because if you're a young Christian, the first time persecution comes, what happens? Man, I didn't sign up for this. Nobody told me about this, Right? That's where we fail, new believers. We, we fail to tell them, we fail to disciple them and teach them. There will come suffering in your life. If you, stand, if you live godly, what did Paul say in 2 Timothy? You will what? Suffer persecution. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says here you're blessed. You may be insulted by human beings, but you're blessed by God. You remember the story in the book of Acts? When they were, uh, they were brought in and they were beaten for proclaiming the name of Christ and then they let them go. What did those men do on their way out? Rejoice because they were found what? Worthy to do what? Suffer for the name of Christ. And by the way, do you ever wonder where Peter may have got this idea from that he's talking about here? You ever, you're going, well, he's inspired by the Spirit of God. Absolutely. But I think Peter's heard this before. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. The Sermon on the Mount. And who's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, church? Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus Himself said, you are what? Blessed when you suffer. The blessing that's promised in verse 13 here is is future. It will come when Jesus comes back. The blessing promised here and now is what? The Spirit of glory and of God. That's talking about the Holy Spirit. It does what to you? It what? It rests upon you? Think about that. Sometimes I think we, we fail to realize when we, when we come to know Christ, we, we become new creations and the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. Do, do, you, do, you comprehend, do you get the full scope of that? That God Himself, when you become a believer, does what? He comes inside and lives in you. The Spirit of God, the Creator, rests upon you. God's presence rests upon the believer in a special way when he's suffering for Christ. The word rest here means to give relief or refreshment. In other words, the Spirit of God gives grace by imparting endurance. When you're suffering and you endure that, it's not because of you, but it's because what? The Spirit of God rests upon you and He perseveres you through that. Peter's point is that when Christians suffer rejection because they stand for Christ, something of the Lord is is seen in them. Even if others reject God and them. You remember the story of Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 6? What they do to Stephen? Stoned him, right? You remember what they said about Stephen before they stoned him? It says that those who stoned Stephen, they saw his face, and it looked like the face of what? An angel. I don't know about you, but when I'm standing there and people are lined up to chunk rocks at me, I don't, I don't have a smile on my face. But these People looked upon Stephen, and the Spirit of God was resting upon him. How do we apply this? What do we do? Let me ask you this. Is your tendency to groan and look for an escape from suffering? That's that's our tendency, right? Instead of that approach, do this. Look at the trials, especially persecution, as a means of leading you into deeper fellowship with Jesus to a deeper joy at His coming and a deeper experience of the Spirit of God in your life. I bet most of us never think about our sufferings in that way, do you, you, I've, heard, I've told you this. Suffering has come in my life a lot here in the last eight years, but I can tell you this. The suffering has brought great joy in my life. Not because of the pain, but because of what I've seen God do in my life. To move me toward loving Him and trusting Him more than I ever did before the suffering came. Verses 15 through 18. Examine. (coughs) But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. Peter says, in effect, make sure you're not suffering because of some sin in your life. You don't want to suffer because of that. Notice that word evildoer there. It's it's a broad term for doing wrong. It's a broad term for doing wrong. Now, some of us are sitting here and we're thinking, well, at least I'm not a murderer or a thief. I got that part covered, right? You checked that off. I, I don't have to worry about those. Are you sure? Well, you're going to want. I wouldn't be here if I was a murderer or a thief. I'd be where? I'd be somewhere. Other than church, they had me locked up. But keep in mind that these sins are first sins of the heart before they're ever sins of action. 
Jesus said, if you have unrighteous anger in your heart, it's the same as murder, right? He says that. You've heard it said, but I say, if you have anger in your heart, you're a murderer. You're thinking, okay, maybe I can't check one out, but I'm for sure not a thief. Let me ask you this. Have you ever wished that you could steal the life of someone else and make it your own? Uh Uh-oh. I wish I could be him or I could be her, right? Some of us old folks, we don't really care no more. We just... We just want to get through the day. We, you know, I'll be me. Just make it through the day. But younger folks, we, we want to be someone else. We want to steal that life and make it our own, right? Jesus says, that, that's being a thief. You're, you're wanting something that God didn't intend for you to have. Notice that word, um, meddler. It refers to a busybody and things that are foreign to his calling. Peter's referring to actions that interfere with the smooth functioning of society and government. <clears throat> Political activism or civil agitation. I don't have the time to go there, but we see a lot of that on TV here lately, right? I don't know about you, but I don't think there's nothing moral about Moral Monday. And I'll kind of leave that there. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The word Christian means simply this, follower of Jesus. If you suffer for following Jesus, what does Peter say? Don't be ashamed. Ashamed has the idea of being what? Dishonored. Shame is what you feel if you're guilty of sin. The sins in verse 15. Murder and thief. But suffering for Christ's sake is different in that It carries no shame with it. He says, let him not be ashamed, but let him do what? Glorify God in that name. What name? Christian. Follower of Jesus. Glorify God in that name. If you suffer because you take a stand for Christ, then you should seek to make Him look as good as He is to the behavior in that trial. Now here's what I want to ask you, Christian. Where do you get your identity? Where do you get your meaning and purpose for this life? You can't put your identity in the hands of others who are going to reject you for your faith. Suffering for Jesus actually reinforces your identity. You've taken His name, you're a Christian, and you're glorying in that identity. All the affection and all the respect and all the praise human beings give you could not compete with the deep joy you have in being ridiculed or being included in the family of God. Verse 17. Verses 17 and 18 are kind of tricky. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The first thing to point out here is that phrase, household of God. The phrase is referring to the church. That's what that's referring to. The word judgment, when attached to the church, the household of God, believers, is not referring to condemnation. It's more along the idea of discipline. Understand that. For it is time for judgment or discipline to begin where? In the church. 
A holy God is not satisfied for uncleanliness to continue in the hearts of His people. A holy God desires for His people to be holy, so a holy God will visit His people with what? Discipline or judgment. The judgment and discipline on believers comes in the form of what, do you think? Difficulties, trials, sufferings that we experience in life. The judgment on believers means that God lovingly uses our sufferings to purify us from sin and refine us. Is God punishing us for our sin? Not necessarily, but He's bringing suffering in our life to open our eyes to something that will remove that sin in our life. This doesn't mean that our sufferings for Christ's sake come as punishment. We're not being punished, but they are God's tool for lovingly refining and purifying us. So what might you do the next time you suffer? Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. It's come. God's doing something in my life. It could very well be that there's something in my life I need to get rid of. I need to. And God in His grace is letting you suffer. You're going, you got to be kidding me. He's letting you suffer in order to get that out of your life to make you more like Jesus. Notice the latter part of verse 17 and 18. <clears throat> what, will be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 18. Here's what I think Peter's saying. If people who have been made righteous by Christ are still in need of discipline in order that they may become actually more righteous, if they are scarcely saved, what in the world is the hope for the ungodly? If God uses trials to purge sin out of our life, If the process of salvation is that difficult, of sanctifying and making us more like Jesus, think of how much worse the day of judgment will be for the godless and the sinner. If God uses suffering in your life to purge sin out of you, what is it going to be like on the day of judgment for the ungodly? How do we we apply this quickly? One of the hard lessons we all need to learn about suffering, about hard times, is that this cancer, if you will, of sin is rooted in the very core of our being. We, even as Christians, as I said earlier, we're shot through with sins. Sin, listen, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, sin no longer reigns in our life, but it remains in our life. It doesn't control our life, dominating our life, but sin still remains, right? This is yes. And God is committed to cutting out all of that out of your life. And He'll do whatever it takes to get it out. The process may be painful, but not nearly as painful as the alternative, which is to face His wrath on the day of judgment. I don't know about you. I, 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 we need to be praying for lost people. People you know who are lost, who don't know Jesus, that if they don't come to Christ, one day they're going to face the wrath of God. And it's not going to be a pretty sight. Your loved ones, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates who don't know Jesus. We need to quit looking at them as just people. But we need to look at them as people who are condemned, who need Christ. Yeah, Peter says you'll suffer as a Christian. But don't lose heart. Don't consider falling away from the faith because you're suffering. In times of suffering... You need to examine yourself in the depth of your sin in light of eternity and submit to what God's doing in your life to refine your life. Verse 19, quickly. <clears throat> Entrust. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Peter ends by telling the believer what he should do when he faces suffering. What should you do? Trust God and do what's right. That's simple, isn't it? Trust God and do what's right. Notice that when we suffer, it's according to what? The will of God. All suffering comes by the permission of a sovereign God who works all things together for our good. Nothing comes our way that it does not first go through the hands of God. And the good news is this, since God is in control of suffering, and suffering doesn't happen apart from His permission, we can know that, number one, it will only last as long as God chooses for it to last. And two, it will work to accomplish His good purposes in us. Peter says, entrust your soul. It means to trust someone to care and to protect and safeguard you. That's what that means. Entrust your soul. Notice what it says here, to a faithful creator. God is faithful because He is faithful to His promises to His people, never to abandon them. Peter calls Him the creator here because that reminds us that He's sovereignly in control over everything. The God who made the world is in control. Permitting only the suffering that He chooses in our lives for our good and for our being made more like Jesus. So, what do we do with verse 19? When you're going through periods of suffering, the first thing God wants you to do is to entrust yourself to His perfect fatherly care. Those of you who got small children, you ever you ever tried this? Uh, a child will jump off anything in your arms because they know what? They'll know you'll catch them, right? Now there comes a point in time when they think you've lost your mind. They don't listen to nothing you say anymore. But there's a point in time when they'll trust you with their lives. That's the idea. We're to trust God. We, He is a perfect Father, and He cares for us. And second, He wants you to do. What pleases Him? Do what's right. Trust Him and do what's right. As a Christian, we can expect what, church? Suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. More than that, by God's power, we can do what? We can rejoice in them if we understand that God is working something in our lives. It's... It's not meaningful. When they come, we should examine ourselves and entrust ourselves to God, knowing that we are in His perfect will. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste it. Does that make sense? If God is working in that, don't waste it. Trust God and do what's right. If you've got your hand out, if you flip over on the back side, this is just a summary of what we just went through. <clears throat> Encouragements to our perspective on suffering. Those are just kind of a... You can flip that over this week, and you can be reminded as you read those verses of what God exhorts us to do in His Word. Let's pray.